and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. Today, I am your producer, Gavin Talamedi, and I am joined with hosts Yusuf Hassan and Elizabeth Moeller. In this episode, Yusuf and Elizabeth chat with Indigenous graduate students Riley Corbin and Yulene Victoria Bombery for Indigenous Awareness Week here at Western. Riley is an MA student in the French department here at Weston, and Yulene is a MA student in the Department of Geography. So let's get right into the episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast for the Society of Graduate Students here at Western. I'm your host, Yusuf, and I'm joined I'm your co-host, Elizabeth. <laughs> Awesome. And we are here today with Riley Corbin, who's doing his master's in French. Welcome to our show, Riley. Thanks for having me, everyone. All right. So, Riley, tell us more about yourself. How did you come to be interested in doing a master's in French? And what were you doing before that? Uh, so, I'm Riley. I'm from Thunder Bay, Ontario. Um, I'm still in Thunder Bay at home right now amidst the pandemic. I'm doing my master's online. Um, what I was doing before, so I have my undergrad in French, and then I did a teacher's college for two years. I graduated in the spring, so oh. April 2020. And with that, what's funny is we thought our placements, teaching placements, were going to be canceled because of a pending strike. Yeah. Amidst the unions. And then so happens within a week or two, all of a sudden it's because of the pandemic. Um, but nonetheless, graduated with that, and then you asked how I came to, to do my master's in French. Mm-hmm. It was more by consequence than anything. Cause if it was a year ago at this time, I would have thought there's no way, like in my mind, I had goals of, you know, whether it was a long-term occasional an LTO contract, or maybe I was fortunate enough to teach locally that that's what I would be doing in September as the pandemic rolled on and we had the strikes going. So they created this, perfect storm with the government and the boards and it made it hard to gauge budgets cuts where their hiring capacity would be mm-hmm. and so i thought you know what this would be a good time to keep some open doors as far as maybe exploring some more education and lo and behold uh i waited and i waited and finally decided you want know like i just think it'd be a good idea to get that education extra education though it's only one year program and if cases are low in our region, I can still supply teach as well. Um, And in the end, you know what? French is a passion of mine. My dad's side's francophone and I was fortunate to grow up around that. And um, I'm pretty relieved that I followed this route because it would have been pretty stressful starting. I mean, any job, but particularly in teaching right now, amidst, you know, all the PPE, all the protocols, it would be a stressful time. That's really good that, you know, you had the opportunity of doing a one-year program instead of committing yourself to three years program. And that's a difficult commitment to make. Um, I'm just wondering, how does it feel to do your grad studies in an online fashion amidst the pandemic? Uh, so the pros and cons to it, you know, obviously the downfall is you don't get that face-to-face with your profs and your classmates. So comparatively, whether it was high school, university, you know, you, you develop those connections especially with your classmates and you make friends and stuff and it's not to say that not friends within my program it's just after those zoom calls it's tricky you know you don't like go out for lunch or something or drink afterwards and get to know people a whole lot better you kind of see them in isolated context um what i do like is where i am at home when i was going to lake at university which is in thunder bay my drive to campus was quite long. And so now I can wake up 10 to 15 minutes before roll out of bed, coffee, come to my computer. And I found there's an extra maybe hour a day I have towards my readings and my work as opposed to just driving. So that's been kind of nice. You know, uh, I'll just add to that quickly that, yeah, there, there are definitely some positives as well, as you mentioned. And hey, we're recording this on a Saturday. And it may have been difficult to do so on campus at the radio station. Uh, So, yeah. Riley, um, I'm wondering if you can share with us, you finished Teachers College, congrats, that's really exciting. What are you hoping to teach eventually? Or are you hoping to teach? Has this master's maybe changed your career outlook? 
I do want to teach. Um, so when you do enter teacher's college, you have two streams you can choose. Primary, junior, PJ, which is essentially kindergarten to six, or IS, intermediate, senior. That's what I chose, which is grade seven to 12. So that's your, where you're qualified to teach. To add to that, when you choose IS, you have to have what's called two teachable subjects. So one is your major degree, and then there's a certain amount of prerequisites you have to have in a second subject. So French is my first teachable. Health and phys ed is my second. So as far as um, a, a dream job, if you will, I would love to be teaching at the high school level, whether that was French only, phys ed only, a combination of the both, I'd love, I would love it. You know, I, I've been fortunate to have my placements in both of those subjects. I've done some supply teaching in those subjects and tutoring and I can't get enough of it. So as far as you asked, has the masters necessarily swayed me maybe a bit differently? Um, not too much. I mean, the idea of a doctorate has come up and of course you, you consider it, but with that, it comes, it, it was never a, a personal goal nearly as much as I'm sure other people have is, you know, obtaining that PhD or that MD or that um, lawyer's degree. It never appealed to me that much. And I'm not sure that I would see myself teaching at the university level per se. All right, Riley. So here's a scenario for all of us. We are all in, in an, an elevator on the ground floor. We're going on the ninth floor and we ask you the question, tell us about your research. Well, you have one minute, go ahead. Elevator pitch. <laughs> I'm using the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, TRC's 94 calls to action document as uh, the core of my research. I wanna compare texts or books written by Canadian Indigenous authors, French and English, from before the release of the TRC calls to action and after. Using that to compare and contrast has there been any progress made? Watered down version. So has there been any progress? And, or if, if, if it's not so, do you think there, there is a potential for progress easily? Well, and what I'll do is, part of that is my readings, will, I'll really dive into it far more come the spring. That's when I'll really start on, in our department it's called our memoir, which, call it a thesis it's a 40 to 60 page dissertation essay all right um i do believe there what i will find i suspect will be some forms of progress within indigenous and non-indigenous peoples however um as i'll refer to uh, what justice murray sinclair had said in one of his many videos interviews is we look at seven generations plus of the consequences of colonialism, residential school, 60 scoop, systemic racism. So this document comes out in 2015. It's not going to be a quick fix. It, look how much time it took to undo and do so much damage. Yeah. You're gonna, it's going to be a generational thing before we start seeing huge amounts of progress, I suspect. It doesn't mean that there can't be small glimpses of that. But what I do suspect when I'm writing my thesis is that this will need substantially more time to really give it a fair shake, if you will. One of the things um, you've mentioned a couple of times, you mentioned the, uh, the TRC. Um, can you just sort of in, in a one minute nutshell um, expand a little bit more upon what that document is? Um, so just to distinguish, you have the 94 calls to action, which is the document itself. And specific date, it's late 2015 when it was published. So I want to say November, December 2015 is the actual document. So if maybe it's kind of the product or one of the many products of the actual commission. The commission, um, again, these are a lot of dates that I do want to verify. So anyone watching this wants to call me out, email me, you're wrong. I'm open to that. But as far as I know, it was established in 2010. And the idea of it was it was a five-year um, 
I don't know how you want it, what word I want to use. It was a five-year implemented schedule, commission, whatever, where within those five years, they had certain goals and what they wanted to do in that time. Um, and then, so within the commission, you have the, there was three main commissioners, you have a council, and it was, the idea was creating like an independent council or group aside from the government to look into what, underlying issues existed within indigenous and non-indigenous populations and working towards that reconciliation. And so that was with the calls to action. I've gone over that minute hundred percent by now, but with those 94 calls to action is I'm kind of concluding their findings of here are some steps that need to be uh, made. Did that help answer your question or did Absolutely. I ramble on? Yeah. 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 And um, what are some other related research areas um, to the one that you're doing right now that you may also be very interested in and maybe who knows by the end of your research incorporate that as some of your sections as well? Um, when I was flirting with this idea of what I wanted to do, something that's always genuinely interested me was accents, regional dialects, particularly in the context of French language. Um, drawing back to, like I said, with my dad's side being francophone, particularly Franco-Ontarien, so French-Canadian from Northern Ontario. Um, when, so I guess this would fall under linguistics, um, would be looking at the evolution of you know, the language from region to region within our own country and within provinces. The interest was there. One, I guess, problem that I would definitely face in that is going through my bachelor's and the forms of education I've had in French. I don't have a huge foundation in looking at and analyzing linguistics. So even though it's appealing, I don't necessarily have the tools at my disposal to tackle it. I'm sure I would have been able to find a prof to work with that would help. But even right now, there's... Um, the professors within our department that are usually responsible for teaching uh, linguistics seminars or courses, I believe they're on sabbatical or leave this year. And so right there, that takes away from my chance to do that, which is fine. Well, you mentioned something called a, um, a memoir or um, that you had to produce at the end of your, your degree. How is that kind of similar or different to a thesis or a dissertation? The way, I, and too, even I was confused when I saw it. So there was no course route offered for this French master's this year. I don't know if maybe in the past there had been, but it comes down to how many courses you can offer, right? And so the way they've explained it, and I understand it, is it's a shorter thesis. That's the best, simplest way. Whereas, so mine is 40 to 60 pages. I think a thesis in a master's in French would be 80 to 100 pages, if I have to guess. I'm sure it would be on the department site if it existed. So, and if anything, I think the idea of having a thesis in a master's compared to a memoir, not to say that the memoir couldn't, but the mm -hmm. thesis is maybe an introduction to those who want to carry on with their PhDs and expand more on it after. Whereas this, what I've gathered is it's more like isolated. Yeah, and is there an oral defense that you have to give or it, it, the 60 pages is hopefully sufficient? No, I don't have to do an oral defense. So <laughs> um, what'll happen is courses, like I'm sure for everyone, they'll end for, where do we, mid-March now with the extended vacation or April, pardon me. Um, courses will end and then essentially May, June, July will be my time to carry out my readings and write. And then I believe I have to, the first week of August, the 6th or the 7th is when I have to submit it. And it's submitted to my supervisor mm -hmm. and there's one or two other professors. Not sure if they're only Western or maybe there's one from abroad that would look at it. And so that, that's how it's carried out and I have to obtain want to say a 75 minimum type deal, you get one extra chance, you know, if they mark it, you get one chance to correct it and resubmit it if you didn't obtain the mark needed. 
not, I don't think it will come to that, nor do I hope it comes to that. Fair enough, fair enough. It's, um, it's interesting learning about different styles of masters, um, you know, that, that are offered to so many professional programs, research masters, uh, blended of the two. Um, you're doing coursework right now. Is there something that's really interested you or excited you that you're learning about in, in one of your courses that you'd like to share with us? Sure. In the fall, I had um, three courses, technically. One was every other week, like a methodology and research course. Um, we had a contemporary literature course that really interested me. Again, it was just it, comparatively to a lot of like ancient French literature from 15th, 16th century. It's just a lot more modern. You see yourself represented in the literature. It's just, you know, it's easier to relate. Um, so that was interesting. And it was not only just literature from France. We had, I believe, text from France. We had some French-Canadian content, some African content. Uh, so a bit of all over, which was nice. And then this semester, um, one thing we we're looking at, l'anthropocene. Anthropocene, is that how you would pronounce it in English? With the Anthropocene era? Anyway, mm -hmm. uh, so we're looking at... Um, texts, uh, scholarly articles, books that, you know, engaging. So it's, there's a lot of parallels with that in colonization, decolonization, anti-colonization. Um, looking at it so far, a lot of the context of the Caribbean and African with a lot of you know, French background there. But also with that, there's a lot of parallels I can see with my own interests and in, uh, research potentially with um, Canadian Indigenous peoples as well. A lot of the, you know, similar um, th things that people went through um, under, like, I, you could argue that among people, groups or areas of the world that were colonized. So if you're looking at the Americas, Africa, Caribbean, Australia, New Zealand, Pacific Islands, you go on with areas where they were colonized by Europeans. A lot of the experiences would be similar, I would uh, argue. And so we're seeing that in this class. Mm -hmm. um, so Riley, could you tell us more about the effects of col col colonization in Canada and how it relates to, um, how those effects relate uh, are gonna be connected in your research? Oh geez, where to begin? Um, so right away, as far as timeline goes, um, you have full-on genocide um, trying to kill off the Indian, which we now know is completely inaccurate, right? They landed in the wrong continent, wrong country. Um, then you go into the cultural genocide with the implementation of the residential schools mm -hmm. and to beat the Indian out of them. And so to forbid people from speaking their own native tongue, practicing their own cultures, um, wearing uh, their traditional garb, yeah. um, practicing their traditional ceremonies. And so having this the word I'm looking for, um, the shame created of your own way of life created. Um, best example I can think of, there are some reserves close to myself in Thunder Bay. So some accessible by highway, others are fly-in or ice road only. You would never think it, but some of these are extremely strict Catholic reservations where it's forbidden to even have powwows or practice any of their former traditions. And so it's, you would never think that. And to see it firsthand or to hear about it is quite shocking, honestly. Um, other examples to the effects of colonization, we look at 60 Scoop I mentioned earlier. And so you have family and with residential schools as well, families split apart, um, torn apart, um, I'm just trying to think more and more. It's um, alcoholism. You have introduction of just, for example, diabetes in uh, First Nations people just disproportionately 
represented and just something that never exists prior to, right? Um, wow. You mentioned the term an ice road. Can you explain a little bit more about what that is? Oh yeah, for sure. Um, that's kind of, are you, have either of you just for sake of context, um, are, are you both in London or Southern Ontario at the moment? I'm in Toronto. I'm Toronto. in London. Have either of you been able to go further north in any respect in Canada? I've been as far north as like Timmins, so not very far. Uh, Yusuf, Yusuf? Not sure. My geography is not too good. Sorry. No, that's okay. Uh, um, so Timmins is probably eight or nine hours east of myself, just to highlight where I am. Um, so ice road, all that means is winter, rake, uh, the lake or the river freezes over, and then you can drive on it uh, to get to communities that way. Otherwise, uh, summer, fall, you would, the only way you could access it was by flying in. And so it, you can't go fast either on these ice roads, but the ice is thick enough that you can drive on it in the winter, which I, you would think that's a pretty like, almost so old fashioned or um, like almost Neanderthal concept, the idea that you could drive on the ice to somewhere else far away, but yeah, they still exist. These places are so remote. I was just picturing what you were saying. Um, and got lost yeah, me too. Oh yeah. So it's just, I'm a, is this like a very foreign concept? Like I've heck? read about it in books, but there were oh. books written like a hundred, like, well, there were books set a hundred years ago. They weren't written a hundred years ago, but there were books set in like 1913. So. Wow. Okay. Uh, yeah. It's very, it's a very interesting concept to me. Um, wow. I've heard of playing com communities. I had a friend that actually did a um, placement in um, Kenora. Yeah. That's about five and a half hours west of me. Beautiful there. Yeah, um, I was wondering, wondering Riley, um, I know you've just begun your master's, but maybe sometimes one of those weekends you think about what you might be doing in a couple of years from now. Do you have some ideas what you would like to do or what would you like to pursue after your master's? Yeah, for sure. Um, so let's say if it was a five-year goal we're looking at, I would like to be teaching and at the same time, because I do have a great appreciation and love for sports, I would love to be coaching both, whether it's at the school I was teaching at or as well as in the community, particularly hockey. I was fortunate enough to play um, growing up and it, I would like to give back in a lot of ways, you know, and give back that time. And um, that's for sure, those would be two personal professional goals for myself. And then kind of um, tying into Elizabeth earlier, there's a few other languages I would love to learn. The tricky thing is where I am, um, much like the rest of Canada in a lot of ways, when you're so Northern or remote, it can be tricky other than English, French, because it's in the schools. Mm -hmm. And if you, for example, uh, not the case for myself, but if you're of um, immigrate, immigrant descent and you had uh, parents from, let's say, Italy or here, Finland is quite common, um, you would have that at home. But otherwise, languages that appeal to me, for example, whether it be Spanish, Italian, German, Russian, it's not necessarily practical to take those on. Like you might learn some expressions, but after the context of a class or a private tutor, um, you wouldn't have so much access to do it. So even bringing those, even if they were brought to our schools, it'd be tricky to really carry them on compared to, let's say Toronto or Montreal or Vancouver, where, you know, it's far more diverse and there's people from all over. And then you could have, you know, regular day-to-day -day conversations. It's just here, that's one of the downfalls of being so, you know, small population and remote. Are you hoping to stay in, in the Thunder Bay area? Are you, would you like, is part of why you chose Western that you're hoping to maybe move move south at some point? Um, so two things. I do love where I'm from, um, deeply rooted with friends and family close by um, and Northwestern Ontario in general, a lot of family across the board. 
So if I did stay here, I, I would be happy. Um, other places that do draw my interest, Canada-wise, is British Columbia for sure, particularly in the in the interior. But the reality is, it's expensive cost of living, and mm -hmm. time being, you know, looking at a starting teacher salary, looking at buying a home, single income in BC. Well, it's not necessarily realistic. Um, at this point in time. I also love the Ottawa area and Quebec are quite beautiful. And it comes back to that, is it necessarily reasonable and that cost of living to consider that? And it's something, you know, I'd be open to it if it was more reasonable, we'll see what happens. Um, and then you asked about Western. One big thing, and I shared this with uh, the head of our graduate studies within the French department is when I was exploring just simply masters in French or French studies. Like I had to really look through what was available in Canada. Like they don't make it like huge public knowledge. And Western was one of the few that actually offered it within Canada. Mm -hmm. um, and contrary to what many people would probably think it's a masters in French does not exist in Quebec. Um, they have undergrads in French, but their masters would be, and for example, they have linguistics um, and stylistics they had at Laval University and all their other masters and graduate studies, for example, let's say forestry or engineering, they're offered in the French language, but they don't have something specific to masters in French. Which Why do you think that is the case? Um, it's funny when I talk to friends from there, it's, they say in French, they explain to me that they're all masters in French already. So they don't, <laughs> which, but we offer masters in English. Like, yeah. You know, so. uh, interesting. Uh, interesting. Um, yeah. I mean, so say that, what would you say to new graduate students who, who are still, experimenting with courses and maybe might want to do some a second masters how would you um maybe encourage them to maybe take a similar path that you've taken or something else what would you say to them to just making sure i understand to undergrad students coming up or someone who's currently in a graduate oh, good uh, i suppose maybe both undergrads as well who certainly are looking for some graduate studies or Maybe sometimes it happens at grad school that we sort of switch uh, from or pursue a second master's as well. Yeah. Um, what I'd say is the tricky part is it, that can incur is the financial aspect, right? Uh, right. People are, might long for that. Maybe, you know, there's all types of situations where people, their hand is forced, they don't have a choice but to enter the workforce, and that's understandable. Um, to those who are in a position of choice where they might be more fortunate to um, go with this. In my case, you know, everyone's on their own schedule, their own path. And so the biggest thing is, well, that's an extra X amount of years, you know, that I'm not starting. You're going to work a lot in your life. Um, most of the time, what's the average work span? 30 years plus type deal before people are in a position to retire. And so for those who are fortunate enough, there's going to be lots of time where you can be having the Monday to Friday, husband, wife, house, kids, white picket, fence dog, all those milestone checkpoints that our society has. It's okay to go your own path, take a little, and being at ease and comfortable with the fact that you can do what you're passionate about without feeling any type of, you know, peer or societal pressure to just start working, just start working. Um, a, a lot of the positives too is particularly like I'm in a very much a literature based um, graduate program. So continuing to develop that, those metacognition skills, those analytical skills, um, not taking anything at face value, question everything. Um, just I find these skills, part, university overall has helped me develop that. And that can be applied to many aspects of life as well. So thank you so much for sharing that, Riley. And we really appreciate that you, you came to GradCast for this 
um, really nice and helpful conversation about your research and some suggestions as well. And honestly, on the suggestions part, we could have like another interview as well uh, if we had more time though. Uh, but I guess we're running, we're almost at the end. So I just wanted to ask, um, is there any contact information that you'd like to share with our audience? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm sure something that will be linked with this video or when it's posted is you're more than welcome to put my Western email. Um, do you want me to like say it or just wait until it's posted after? If you are comfortable, you can go ahead. Oh yeah. So lowercase R Corbin, C-O-R-B-I-N. So you can kind of see my name box there. Five, the number five at uwo.ca. Thank you so much. I think we had a lot of fun. Hi, everyone. Welcome to GradCast, the official video show and podcast for the Society of Graduate Students here at Western. I'm your host, Yusuf. And I'm your co-host, Elizabeth Muller. Awesome. And today we're here joined with Eulene Victoria, who's doing her master's in geography. So welcome to our show, Eulene. Sego, thank you for inviting me. Awesome. So tell us something about yourself, how you came to be interested in what you're doing right now. So Victoria Bambari Nyungyat, Six Nations Nida Regena, Danaganto ne Uncle Hawena Tiki Dano. Ganyok Yahagani Wakonjodo, Wakskareva Ganywigit Dara. Um Dana Newahine um Siskate Goa Dagadaswa Negiga Masters Akadawiunstana. So Sego everybody, my name is Victoria Bambari. Uh, I just wanted to introduce myself in the Ganyogeha language, the Mohawk language. I am um, from Six Nations of the Grand River. And I'm a Mohawk bear. Um, um, and one of the things that I wanted to say is that I have begun my master's here at Western in geography. I am a first generation student. Um, and so it's a really new experience for me. I'm a mature student. I'm a mother of an amazing 10 year old boy. I did my undergrad over at McMaster University in environmental sciences and geography. And how I really fall into this, fell into this research is from my own personal experience, but also through the experiences um, of my Indigenous colleagues over at McMaster. And it was one particular course that really got me started on this research. Um, it was an Indigenous research methodologies course, and um, we were tasked with an assignment to pick anything that we were interested in that we would, might want to research and really create a mock proposal for that research to get a taste of what academic research was like. It was a second year course. And so it took me a while to find a topic. I had some really interesting environmental science courses, but I, of course, um, being Indigenous, um, coming from Six Nations, I wanted something that was directly applicable to my community and, and myself as well, something that would um, be meaningful to our community. And I, I paused and had many conversations with my colleagues, my Indigenous colleagues at McMaster and um, professors. And what I realized was how impactful housing was on our experiences. And so it was through that course um, and that personal um, re reflection that saw how important housing was for Indigenous learners. And yet there weren't a whole lot of housing options that were appropriate for Indigenous learners. At least that was what my early research found. That's really interesting. Um, when you say housing options for Indigenous learners, are you referring to both on and off campus? And could you share a little bit about what some of those housing options maybe could look like that maybe don't exist yet? Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's pretty well known that almost every university and college and most colleges in Canada provide student housing. And with that model, typically, the majority of those student housing typically are shared accommodations, you're living in a housing unit on campus. And while there is alternative options, specifically for graduate studies, you're more likely to see single 
ho- housing for families and housing for more um, mature students. So you have your you're not shared you're not typically having shared accommodations for graduate students, but there there still are. Um, and so the conversations I was having with my indigenous colleagues and myself as well. I am a mature student. I, as I mentioned, I'm a mother, so I have a child that I I need housing for as well. It's not just myself. So when I was looking at McMaster the student housing options that they had for undergraduate students didn't meet my needs at all. It wasn't even an option for me. So I was, I, in order to to find appropriate housing for my family, I, ha- I had to look off campus. On-campus housing wasn't, wasn't an option for myself and it wasn't an option for many Indigenous learners. When we look at the demographics of typical Indigenous learners in post-secondary environments, they are more likely to be female, they are more likely to be mature, they are more likely to have a family, and they are more likely to um, be the um, need housing for children as well as themselves. And that does not um, align with the majority of housing options that Canadian universities tend to offer. And so, Actually, I did. I received a grant from McMaster's Community Engagement Office to investigate this further, and I held a few focus groups, um, sharing circles, but um, they're they're similar to focus groups. And uh, so I spoke with Indigenous students at McMaster and Mohawk College, and it was a really um, informative experience to hear from students, Indigenous learners firsthand, what their housing experiences were. And that we had the full spectrum. We had Indigenous learners who owned their own houses, but we and we also had Indigenous learners who were living in shared accommodations. We had Indigenous learners who were um, technically couch surfing. They didn't have, or Monday to Friday would couch surf because they didn't have housing on their own in the city of Hamilton while they were pursuing their studies. And then I also spoke with a few students who were um, um, living in shelters. And so you have that full housing spectrum that. Uh, we're not necessarily hearing a lot about in terms of what universities are doing to um, better support Indigenous learners. You used a term that I found really interesting. And I'm, I'm, so you said sharing circles and they're similar to focus groups. Could you maybe tell us a little bit more about what a sharing circle is? Absolutely. So yeah, I'm sorry, I should define that uh, research method. So that's an Indigenous research method that really pulls from Indigenous um, cultural understandings in speaking together. It's really socially, it's a social model where we gather together. Um, I moderate the conversation very, very lightly. We have an elder participant who guide us and um, provide support and facilitate the conversation as well. So it's more um, grounded in our culture. It looks a lot more familiar to Indigenous people. So it's something that is that a lot of us Indigenous peoples, of course, are not a monolith. We come from many different cultures and we have many different understandings and worldviews. But sharing circles is something that we can pull from our multiple cultures and really resonates with us when we're doing this sort of research. Well, I was wondering, so you've, you've been, your research is uh, tied with um, you going out and talking, speaking with people and... Uh, could you tell us more about your own experiences and some of the difficulties we might have to conduct your research? I think one of the strengths of my research is that I am an Indigenous student and an Indigenous learner myself. And so I come from that personal experience, the discrimination that I faced in seeking out housing in Hamilton. Um, to be honest, it, it's demoralizing. You know, I've been... I've been, I've had the experience where you call up and they say the unit is available. You arrange a time to go see the unit and then you get there and the landlord or whomever it is is showing you the unit sees you and suddenly the unit is no longer available. So that that level of discrimination is something that I have personal experience with. And I know that um, is not an uncommon experience for indigenous people seeking housing. Why do you think that is? You know, I know that's a really broad, big question, but what do you think some of those systemic reasons are for for the discrimination? Racism is still a very significant issue in across Canada. I don't want to single Hamilton out, but every community has its own levels of discrimination against Indigenous peoples, against Black peoples, against people, racialized peoples. And so we experience this in so many um, 
overt and covert ways that impacts our experiences and, and housing is one of those. And housing is so integral to the health and well-being of our of every individual and every family that we really need to work on addressing racism and, and housing experiences. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I mean, I guess sometimes these covert forms of racism um, can be so much more harmful and harder to tackle. I was wondering, do you have any ideas uh, what the student body can do to to um, reduce these sorts of impacts or at least uh, improve the situation? I think Western uh, seems to, I'm new to Western, so I will say that, but I read that there was an investigation into the racism and discrimination and students are facing, racialized students are facing on campus and that there's been a strategic plan um, built to address that discrimination and make the campus a more inclusive and safe space for all of us. And I think reading that report and looking at ways that you can pull out action items individually or collectively if you're a part of a group would be a great first step. And in terms of some of the things that maybe you're hoping to uncover, yeah, you're just starting your master's, what are, what are some things that you're maybe hoping that you'll be able to um, uncover or some you know, tentative recommendations that you think you might like to make around housing? So I don't wanna put any expectations on the outcomes of my research, uh, having not begun it yet, but I do wanna say that it's, there's two significant conversations that it directly ties into, and that would be the education uh, conversation that we've been having, or Canada has been having for the last 10 years plus, in terms of addressing the education gap between Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples. Uh, Indigenous peoples, um, the latest, the most recent statistics show that about 10% of Indigenous peoples uh, ha have achieved a university degree. The latest research shows that approximately 10% of Indigenous peoples have achieved a university degree. In comparison, um, over 26% of non-Indigenous peoples have achieved a university degree. So there's a significant gap between education gap between Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples that there have been numerous conversations and many uh, great initiatives have been uh, brought forward to address that, that gap. So my research is a part of that conversation, but it's also a part of the housing conversation. And it's, it's very much an issue across Canada and particularly in urban centers, the rising unaffordability of housing and that impacts Indigenous peoples significantly as well. And in both of these conversations, the Indigenous experience is unique. It, it cannot be generalized with the rest of the Canadian population. What we've seen from the Truth and Reconciliation um, Commission, the report, as well as the calls to actions, there is historic and ongoing systemic discrimination against Indigenous peoples that have resulted in these gaps. And we need to be very intentional about the Indigenous experience and creating supports and addressing these discriminations at the systemic level. Yeah, um, could you tell us more about the Truth and Reconciliation uh, Action and, uh, and how it relates to your research that you're doing right now? Yes, so the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was to address residential schools. Uh, I don't wanna get too far into the history of that, but Indigenous peoples, um, the residential experience was really to uh, the, the, the comment, the most popular quote is from, the most popular quote we hear about it is that it was to kill the Indian and the child and to, to completely assimilate Indigenous peoples into Canadian, um, into the Canadian population and separate our, our people, my ancestors, from their culture and from their knowledges and from their communities especially. And so the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was investigating that experience and what they brought forward in 2015 were the calls to action. And that really looked at the multiple systems across in Canada, education, health, justice, social, and, and it called for systemic change to address that historic and ongoing discrimination and oppression of Indigenous peoples. And so 
Universities Canada, as I mentioned a bit earlier, um, their response to the truth and reconciliation calls to action were to acknowledge that they have a significant role in enhancing access to education for Indigenous peoples and advancing reconciliation. And that's where my research ties into. As yeah. universities across Canada are seeking to enhance access to education specifically for Indigenous peoples, we need to have the research specifically for Indigenous peoples to have the data to figure out how to, all many the many different ways we can enhance access. So I was wondering, um, well, how, how, what kind of strategies do we have that we're working on right now that are promising uh, in terms of enhancing access to post-secondary education? In my own experience, what we see have, has been born from that, um, that acknowledgement of universities and enhancing access it's the creation of Indigenous studies programs. It's the creation of Indigenous student right. services. There's, there is, um, there's been many, there have been many great initiatives that have born from that and that, we, that have benefited Indigenous peoples in accessing um, and completing their post-secondary studies. You mentioned um, a couple of, of initiatives. Is there anything at Western that you've seen that you feel has really um, help to move the conversations forward around um, inclusion uh, of Indigenous perspectives within, within academia. So there are so many great initiatives that are happening on university campuses across Canada, but one of the most significant and I think will be one of the most impactful moves that a few universities, including Western, have begun is that and that is creating Indigenous leadership positions. Uh, Western has the Office of Indigenous Initiatives and there's more Indigenous leadership happening at that senior administrative level that is necessary to ensure that all aspects of university processes and activities um, are being built with Indigenous people's and indigenous learners experiences in mind. Yeah, uh, at the Society of Graduate Students, for instance, our uh, indigenous commissioner Genevieve is working hard creating events and so forth. Um, and I was wondering if you were to give a suggestion of how some of these things can be further improved or something that could be added uh, as an initiative, um, what would, that look like if, if you were to pick maybe one key thing? I think it, uh, it comes down to funding. It's making sure that these initiatives have appropriate and sustainable funding to continue. Uh, when I, before I began Western this fall, wow. actually I took part in the Head and Heart program. And as a first generation graduate student, I, I cannot express how helpful and how, how much that program supported me in that tr transition. I'm sure you both know that graduate studies is a completely different world from undergraduate studies and not having anyone um, in my family to speak about um, the process has been invaluable. And so I made those connections, not only with Indigenous staff in the Indigenous Student Services Office, the Office of Indigenous Initiatives, but also other Indigenous students at Western as well. I had the opportunity to build relationships and um, it was a paid research um, fellowship. And mm -hmm. so I had the opportunity to really do this background research about my studies. And that really gave me a head start that I otherwise would not have had. And I, I don't think I would have had as strong a start in my graduate studies without that experience. Sounds like a really valuable program um, that you took part in. And one that I think you've mentioned the word first generation a couple of times, uh, I think, it's really important for, for um, opening up those conversations, like, like you said, that you may not have been able to have with anybody in your family. Is there one thing in particular that you thought, wow, like I really learned about this from the program I took and it was something I wouldn't have been able to learn about um, had I not taken the program? There was so much that I, I gained from the Head and Heart program. Um, first and foremost, the relationships um, we got to work very closely with um, each other, other Indigenous scholars uh, coming into the, their graduate studies or pursuing their undergraduate studies. Uh, we had weekly um, seminars with Indigenous scholars talking about their research and their research experience. Um, 
And then the, on the more practical side, we built a dossier. I, I honestly had never heard of a dossier before, head and heart, and understanding like these different um, parts of academia that I had no experience with was incredibly helpful. And just simply the opportunity to, to think about my research and to think about its impact and to see where it connects and to re really become a researcher was an invaluable experience. Victoria, what do you think the impacts of your research are going to be? What I haven't found so far is research specific to Indigenous learners' experience here in Ontario. So there's a significant data gap in understanding mm. our Indigenous housing experiences while they're pursuing their post-secondary studies. And I think it's it's really important at this point in time when we see the housing conversations that we're seeing in the newspapers, in the media daily, and acknowledging that housing has become unaffordable for so many families. And if housing is unaffordable, it makes it that much more difficult to make the decision to pursue your post-secondary studies if you're struggling with your housing. So what I hope this research will show is that um, it'll give insights about the unique housing experiences of Indigenous learners, whether that's discrimination, whether that's affordability, whether that's locational. I hope that we learn more about that and that we can build the supports that meet those needs. Well, thank you so much. Um, is there any social media outlet that you'd like to share with all of us? Um, any any contact information that you that you feel comfortable sharing or any website? Sure. Uh, I do follow Indigenous housing and homelessness issues, and that's typically what I share on Twitter. So if you'd like to follow me and learn more about housing and homelessness and specifically the Indigenous people's experience, my Twitter handle is at E.V. Bomberry. Well, um, thank you so much. And this has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Yusuf, and my co-host was Elizabeth Fuller. Yeah. Uh, and we've been speaking with Yulene um, Victoria, and the episode was produced by Gavin. If you would like to be involved with the show or get in contact with us, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at gradcastradio. To listen to us, we are on the radio at Radio Western, 94.9 FM. You can also find all of our episodes on the website at gradcast.ca or on podcast apps like Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Alternatively, select podcasts have been uploaded to YouTube at Gradcast Radio. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful day.